Welcome to A Story of Us, our humanity, history, and department. My name is Emma Legan, your host for today, and this podcast is hosted entirely by the graduate students at The Ohio State University's Anthropology Department through the Anthropology Public Outreach Program, or APOP for short, and in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. In today's bonus episode, we have a guest speaker with us here, Dr. Donnie Wolf-Stedman. Dr. Stedman is from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and she is the director of the Forensic Anthropology Center. So welcome, Dr. Stedman. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. So you're here to give us a lecture at the department, which is awesome, and we're looking forward to it. It's called (laughs) Microbes, Raccoons, and Drugs Research at the Body Farm. While we have you here, we wanted to just talk to you a little bit about your work and anthropology in the broad scheme of things. Great. So the first question I always like to ask my guests is, in your own words, can you define anthropology? Well, I would go back to the textbook first, right, which is the study of humans broadly, their culture, their biology, how those interact, their past, their present, their future. I've always envisioned anthropology as broad as that, and that you can bring so many elements into anthropology from potentially disparate fields, everything from the hard sciences of chemistry and physics to philosophy and ecology. I think that anthropology should remain broad and open to all sorts of ways of thinking about humans. And the more that we learn about, for instance, the biology of humans, the more we understand how culturally impacted that is and vice versa. I always talk about anthropology at the broadest possible level and encourage people to include anthropology in what they do, because it's always going to be relevant if they're talking about humans at all. Absolutely. And what is your anthropology origin story? How did you get into anthropology? Through a back door. I grew up in Arizona, and in our high schools, they didn't teach evolution, but I was very interested in anatomy. And when I was taking anatomy in high school, we dissected fetal pigs and noted how their hearts are like our hearts. But there was no discussion as to why that might be. And so that curiosity was always just left there. And then when I went to University of Arizona, I I majored in anatomy. Uh, I was in pre-med. That's what I wanted to do. But I wanted to do research. But there, in my first couple of years, they taught evolutionary anatomy. So all of those links as to why our hearts are all the same and made more sense. And then my junior year, I had to take a pesky humanities credit. And I had no idea what humanities was. So of course, instead of going to somebody who would know, I went to my roommate. And she said, well, it's like watching films. And I said, okay. And then you could also take anthropology as part of humanities. And I said, well, what's that? She said, well, that's fossils and stuff. I'm like, whoa, okay. I'm okay about fossils. So I took Anthro 101 at University of Arizona with an incredibly dynamic professor, John Olson, who just, I believe, retired from there recently. He was amazing because he was an archaeologist. He studied primates. He was all about hunting Gigantopithecus, which in itself was very interesting. But he also taught you how you could combine different interests that you have with anthropology and really create your own niche. And he was the first professor I ever went to office hours for. I was terrified and talked to him further. And then when he learned that I was interested in medicine, but research and not clinical work, he suggested I meet Dr. Berkby, who was a forensic anthropologist there. And he happened to be giving a lecture the very next day on an airplane crash that he investigated. And he had these burnt remains, and he talked about how he was able to identify them, which was mesmerizing to me. I never would have guessed that you could figure out somebody's identity from those sets of remains. But then he spent a lot of time talking about what it meant to the families. 
to have those remains identified and have them back so that they could be buried or memorialized however the families wished. And to have that sense of relief that you know what happened. And I was very intrigued by that. And I thought, okay, if that's what anthropology is, the science and also the humanity of the science, that's what I want to do. And today you are a forensic anthropologist, and forensic anthropology in its textbook definition is the medical legal. So it's applying everything we know about the skeleton to medical legal problems. To recovering human remains, we go out and we help law enforcement do recoveries of human remains. To the identification of the remains in whatever form they're in, incomplete, burnt, cremated, decomposed, what have you, and trying to find out what happened to them. So looking at any signs of trauma on the skeletons. And then also we could be tasked with estimating the postmortem interval or how long ago they died. So that's something that's become really popular in pop culture today from the television show Bones. And I'm sure some of our listeners have that image in mind. Can you tell us a little bit about the nature of your research and so give us the real forensic anthropology perspective? So at the Forensic Anthropology, we have many resources. And one of them is the Anthropology Research Facility, which is also commonly known as a body farm. And we have donors that donate their body directly to us while they're living. And because they want to inform science and particularly criminal justice. And so we have the body donation program. When a donor comes to us, we take samples and information at intake, but then they go out to the facility or the body farm. And there we do various research projects. We usually have multiple research projects for each donor, plus training out there. And this has been going on since 1981. That was the very first donor. So we're coming up on 40 years of research. And Dr. Bass began this back in 1981. And I talked to him recently and I asked him, did you ever envision that this would be going on for 40 more years? And he said no. He thought that a couple years they would know what they needed to know about decomposition and be done. I think the important thing coming out of our center now is that we recognize how much we don't know about decomposition, getting more fine-grained. We know that temperature affects decomposition. We know insects. We know clothing and coverings and those big picture types of things. Now the research that we're doing, I think, is really more fine-grained. We're looking, for instance, at what are the intrinsic aspects of the body that affect decomposition, and that's where the drugs come in in my study. Okay. That's a new study that we're just starting this month that we got funded for by NIJ. And what we're looking at is how end-of-life medications and drugs that an individual has in their life affects the biological decomposers, the insects, the scavengers, the microbes inside the body, and the microbes in the soil. All of these are the primary decomposers of the remains. And anecdotally, from all the work that we've been doing, they have a tremendous effect, but we don't know how. For instance, there's case studies that show that cocaine in a body speeds up the development of maggots. So entomologists need to be aware that if they're trying to estimate the time since death based on maggot development, that the drugs, if there's heroin or cocaine involved, it might create an error, but we don't know what that error is. Anecdotally, at the facility, we've been seeing that raccoons, which is our primary scavenger, will avoid some bodies and heavily scavenge other bodies. Even when they're all placed at the same time, even when they all have the same body weight and they're in the same microenvironment at the facility, there's preference. And you never think about a raccoon having preference (laughs) for food, but there is. So we think that people that have chemotherapy or even cancer without chemotherapy are not as attractive to even insects and scavengers. But at this point, 
point, it's all anecdotal. So this is the first systematic study of what exactly these drugs do to either attract or avoidance behavior of these decomposers. And I think that it's going to potentially be a game changer in that we may have to do talk studies on our cases before we try to estimate time since death. Or we may not, or it may only affect the insects. You know, I'm not sure. That's why we're doing it. But we've done 40 years of this in the last eight years where we're looking at multiple donors decomposing at the exact same time, but having very different rates and patterns. Something intrinsically is going on. That's one of the directions we're headed right now as as a long example. So that's not going to just inform anthropology that's going to inform law and justice departments and all the other sciences that deal with the body, including medical examiners. So it has the potential to be that impactful. We'll see. I think there's definitely something there based on our observations before this study started. And that really emphasizes the interdisciplinality of the anthropology department. Exactly. Anthropology field, I should say, at large. Absolutely, because on this study alone, we have chemists, we have soil scientists, we have entomologists and all their students, medical examiners involved, kind of guiding us about the drugs and their effects, because none of us are pharmacologists by any means. But we have other studies that also are very multidisciplinary. So we have one study that is looking at proteomics. That is how proteins change over time and metabolomics. So how the things that we eat, the drugs that we take break down in our bodies, right? And what they're looking at specifically with the first study was about how the amino acids and lipids in cell walls of muscle break down. And can we put some sort of postmortem clock to that? And it was actually pretty successful. And so they just started a follow-on study looking at the same types of ideas with different proteins in bone since bone, of course, lasts longer. So can we use these very, very small amino acids and how they change over time as some sort of postmortem clock? And that's working with chemists. Soils are very important in this. All of the work that we do, the isotope work that we do, obviously, has a heavy chemistry component. All of the work we do is very multidisciplinary and leads to broader anthropological questions about the body and culture, because this could very much, especially the toxicology study, could very much also be a cultural study. Right. And I think that's one direction we're going to take this. That's really interesting. I look forward to seeing where those results go. Me too. (laughs) So speaking of anecdotes, I heard a story the other day. I heard that one of the reasons why Bass started his work was because there was a grave of a... Civil War. Civil War soldier. Yes. Yes, that is true. That is a true story. And so he found it in a iron coffin? Can you tell us that story? I yeah, heard I can of try. <laughs> of course, this is Dr. Bass's story, not right. my own. But my understanding is that, yes, they came across some bones on top of a grave or something like that. And then when they dug down, they found a very well-preserved individual. And Dr. Bass believed, based on our non-knowledge at the time about decomposition, that this was a very recent death because there is still soft tissue on there. And then when they did some more research, they found out that this was actually a Civil War soldier. And he was off by over a century. Wow. (laughs) No scientist likes to be wrong, but when you're really that wrong, you know that the science isn't good. So yes, he started the body farm for the purposes of understanding all of those variables that can affect decomposition. I think he thought at the time we could come up with one formula and that would explain all of decomposition. And now we know that that's never going to happen. 40 years later. (laughs) 40 years later, we know that it's much more complicated than anybody thought. But that's great. Anthropologists like complications. We like variability. We like 
difficult, challenging questions that involves a lot of interdisciplinary brainstorming. It's a perfect problem for anthropologists. And so we're lucky that he's the one that grasped this problem and, and realized it is ultimately an anthropological problem. And of course, we've been battling it ever since. But we've done a lot of good work. It makes it sound like nothing happens. <laughs> but just because we don't have one formula doesn't mean we don't understand a lot. Of course. As one of the last questions that I want to ask you is, if we have listeners who are interested in exploring anthropology more, potentially considering it for themselves as Mm -hmm. a future career, what advice would you give to them? If you're in high school, college, take as much science as you can. Write. Be a good writer. Whether you're doing reports, technical reports, or whether you're doing thoughtful research, you need to be a good writer. If you have anthropology, then take that. And don't pigeonhole yourself into one area. I know a lot of people, forensic anthropology is very popular, and we have a lot of people that say, I just want to be a forensic anthropologist. I recommend that you don't do that. I recommend that you get broadly trained in skeletal biology and anthropology, because all of that will come to bear to make you a better forensic anthropologist. So you introduced me as a forensic anthropologist, but really my training is bioarchaeology and paleopathology, and then I also do human rights work. So I take that skeletal biology, and I use that to all sorts of different areas. And I loved fossils at the beginning, so that played into account. And now the work I'm doing in human rights, I'm doing ethnography. That's cultural anthropology. And, of course, everything we do has an archaeological foundation. We're exhuming mass graves and human rights, or we're finding burials in forensic cases, or in bioarchaeology, I get to help excavate a site. So archaeology is incredibly important. So take advantage of all the opportunities that you have available to you in the hard sciences and certainly in anthropology, and don't pigeonhole yourself too quickly. You'll have a much more fulfilling career if you are not myopic. That's really great advice. It reminds me of how I got to where I was going, and basically... I remember the first time I was in a field school and we encountered skeletal remains and I thought, oh, this is excellent. And I asked the osteoarchaeologist, well, how did you do this? And she said, oh, you had to study this this class and you had to learn every single bone. And I went, mm-hmm. nope. <laughs> and then I found myself in a master's degree in skeletal biology. Yeah. And then I took a class and we learned teeth and I hated teeth. Mm. I hated them. And then I took another class and I went, oh, no. You can learn so much from teeth. Never say you're not interested <laughs> never in say something. Never. <laughs> Always exactly. give it a chance yeah. because it, you can integrate it into your primary interests yeah. in ways that we're still imagining. That's yeah. the great thing about anthropology. It's imagination that drives it. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Stedman, for your advice and for telling us about all of your research. It's been awesome having you here. Thank you for the opportunity. I very much appreciate it. We look forward to your lecture later. For all of our listeners, thank you again for joining us. And in the meantime, while you're waiting for our next episode, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at A Story of Us OSU, or check out our website, anthropology.osu.edu. Don't forget to leave us a review of the show on iTunes. Remember, the more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find the show and fall in love with it just like you did. And as always, this podcast is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. We hope you join us next time as we continue to explore a story of us, our humanity, history, and department.